Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 107, Looking Back. Today, we come to the final years of Amunhotep III, King of Egypt. His last said festival, the royal tomb, a diplomatic wrangle, and, of course, the inevitable moment of passing. There is a lot to talk about in this episode, and over two chapters, we explore the great events of the magnificent pharaoh's last years. This episode is brought to you by Dave Ewinchuk and Kirsten Fontenrose, who donated to the show. Thank you, Kirsten and Dave, for your support. May Shu, the Lord of Air, who raises the sun into the daytime sky, breathe life into your limbs and heart. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. The year was 1363 BCE. Egypt was guided by the light of Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III, the Horus who appears in truth, the beloved of Re, the dazzling Aten. It was now the 37th year of Amunhotep's reign. The king was approaching his end. The last years of Amunhotep III's reign are slightly shadowy. We know some of the diplomatic events and correspondence, and we know that the king was in poor health physically. But royal activity, building projects, festivals, and administration, the evidence for those is scanty. Which is a shame. A moment like this, where one reign is coming to its end and another about to begin, is a tantalizing one. I would love to know more. What we do know is that the business of royalty continued in many respects. By 1363, Amunhotep was on track to celebrate another said festival. This would be his third and last, a final jubilation of the king's reign and the splendour of his majesty. Sadly, it wasn't quite as jubilant as the previous ones. Compared to said fest 1 and 2, Amunhotep's third jubilee was paltry. The surviving evidence includes both artistic depictions and jar labels from containers of food and drink. That evidence is depleted significantly from earlier. While Sedfest 1 appears in many scenes from non-royal tombs, Sedfest 3 just gets one picture in the grave of Keruef. Here in a vignette, Amunhotep is depicted raising the Jed Pillar, one of the closing ceremonies of the Sed Festival. That's it. Nothing more. The third Sed festival is basically a footnote in Kerouef's otherwise remarkable records. On top of that slim artistic picking, the archaeological material also suggests a much smaller event. Excavations at Malkata Palace have turned up jar labels from the various Sed festivals. These jars record the goods like meat, 
beer, honey, and wine that came to the palace for the event. Counting those labels, we see a very clear shift in scope. For the second said festival, back in year 34, there are approximately 400 labels. For the third, well, that leaves just 78 so far discovered. 78 versus 400. It seems that the last said fest was a poor affair at best. Which is a bit of a letdown, but that's life. The final days are rarely the most glorious. So the said festival occurred for the third time with some diminishing returns. On the one hand, it was a noteworthy feat for a king to reign this long. On the other, the festivities were hardly the greatest. As the second to last year of his reign came to its end, Amunhotep III's royal majesty may have been slipping ever so slightly. By this time, Amunhotep was starting to become visibly weakened. Illness was creeping in and maladies afflicted the king in several places. I'll get into the details in chapter 2, but long story short, the king was suffering from chronic obesity, dental problems, frequent headaches, and an overall infirmity of body. To anyone with a passing knowledge of disease, the king was not doing well. His horizon was surely in sight. Looking around the palace, you can imagine how different individuals may have felt. For courtiers, perhaps, it was a moment of anxiety. On the one hand, a transition of power was approaching, and that is rarely clean-cut. Some people would be promoted, others might find themselves left out of the next regime. Then there was the religious angle. Some may have felt terror that the pharaoh, the only one most of them had ever known, was coming to the end of his life. What would happen when the living Horus travelled to the west? Sure, there was precedent, but some must have been quite concerned. Finally, we must wonder how the family felt. Queen T had been her husband's stalwart ally and near equal for decades. Was she anxious about her husband's visible weakening, or was she relieved that ill health might soon see relief? Did she fear the loss of her authority, or did she see the coming ascent of her son as the next opportunity in a life already full of them? We'll never know, but it's tempting to speculate. Finally, the question of succession is prominent. What would happen when the pharaoh died? Presumably, power would go to his eldest surviving son, Young Amunhotep IV, now about 17 years old, maybe, was as ready as he'd ever be to take power. Although youthful, he was trained to some degree, and he was the obvious choice of successor. You can all but see the courtiers, viziers, priests, administrators, beginning to congregate around the young prince, making themselves known, reminding him of their service, making sure he treated them with the same respect that his father had done. Like fish to the school, many high officials of Thebes may have begun approaching the young prince in these later years. I don't want to play court drama with this situation, but it's hard not to when you come to the end of one period, especially a period that has such abundant records in many phases. Years 1 to 12, fantastically recorded. Years 18 to 22, pretty well attested as well. Years 30 to 34, Holy heck, we know a lot about that. But years 34 to 38? The records seem to diminish year by year, and as they do, the temptation to fill in the gaps with politicking grows exponentially. 
Finally, year 37 ended, and we come to the last phase of the reign. It was a period marked by silence in the documents, but we have a few cool things to talk about. For one thing, some of those foreign kingdoms show up again in the diplomatic archives, and somehow Amunhotep got into a bit of an argument with them. Regnal year 37 ended around August of 1363 BCE. The new year, with its grand celebrations, was the last that Amunhotep III would witness. Pharaoh didn't know that, of course, but he must have known his health wasn't going to last that much longer. At best, he could expect a lingering period of infirmity before the inevitable moment came. God or not, Amunhotep still had to cross that threshold, eventually. Before he could die, though, Pharaoh had some unfinished business. For one thing, his spate of diplomatic activity was still underway, and his desire for foreign princesses had diminished not one bit. Before we move on to the last moments of his life, I want to look at how Amunhotep III dealt with another foreign power. For this, we must return to that wonderful cache of documents, the Royal Archive of Correspondence, called the El Amana Letters. Previously on the Amana Letters, Amunhotep III had negotiated with the Kingdom of Matani to obtain a bride for his harem. That young lady, Tadu Kepa, was now ensconced in one of Egypt's many palaces. We don't know what she did, or where she lived, but wherever she was, Tadu Kepa was now part of the Egyptian elite, with all that entailed. Meanwhile, having obtained one foreign bride, Amunhotep III began to seek out others. Some time after the Mitanni deal, he opened communications with two other foreign lands. One of those you've probably never heard of, the other is quite famous. Its name, Babylon. For those unfamiliar, Babylon is in Mesopotamia, on the banks of the Euphrates River. In the Bronze Age, Babylon and its kings exerted control over a wide swathe of territory, roughly corresponding to central and southern Iraq. That power waxed and waned periodically, but if you imagine a region focused around the Euphrates, Tigris, and the mouth of the Persian Gulf, you have the basic idea. There is a map on the website. Babylon is a legendary city for the might of its rulers, the learning of its scribes and priests, and the contributions to legal systems, astronomy, medicine, and mathematics that its people made. Babylon was, I don't need to tell you, one of Mesopotamia's premier cities and cultures. For centuries, its people and rulers had been a formidable force in the region. In 1363, the rulers of Babylon were part of a dynasty we call the Kassite dynasty. The Kassites, originally, had been a people living in what is now Iran. Later, they had migrated to the region around Babylon, and gradually integrated with the local communities. Finally, a great upheaval in Babylon itself had given the Kassites a golden opportunity. They gained leadership of the area, and established themselves as the Shah Kur Kara Andunishe. Roughly translated, this means the King of Babylonia. By the time of Amunhotep III, the Kassites had ruled Babylon for about 200 years. They were well-established, well-connected, and clearly one of the world's great powers. 
100 years ago, a Babylonian ruler had communicated with Pharaoh Thutmose III. That king had been friendly with the pharaoh, and according to one text, quote, Up to the present, the messengers of your Egyptian ancestors came regularly to my Babylonian ancestors. They have been friends. End quote. The rulers of Babylon sent envoys to the pharaonic court. The monarchs of the Nile reciprocated. Now it was time for Amunhotep III to do the same. Sometime after regnal year 30, Neb Ma'at Re had sent a messenger to Babylon with a request. Once again, the pharaoh desired a foreign princess to be his bride. This time, he wrote to the king of Babylon to send a daughter for the Egyptian harem. That king, apparently, agreed to the request, but first he had a concern. The king of Babylon was named Kadashman Enlil. Roughly translated, this means refuge of Enlil, referring to a major deity of Babylonia. Kadashman Enlil, like the pharaoh, was a monarch eager to cement his authority in religious terms. Kadashman Enlil, refuge of Enlil, is not so different from a name like Meri Ra, beloved of Ra. Like the Egyptians, Babylonian society had a rich mythological tradition and a network of temples that fed into a complex religious landscape. I'd love to get into all that, but that'll have to wait for another day. Syrian tales too, perhaps? Anyway, Amunhotep III wrote to Kadashman in Lille, asking for a princess to marry. The Babylonian was receptive, in theory, but he had some concerns. You see, Kadashman Enlil was not a young man, and he could remember how his sister had travelled to Egypt in the days of his father's reign. That sister had gone to marry an Egyptian pharaoh, possibly Amunhotep himself, possibly Thutmose IV. Apparently it had all gone well, but, and this was a big but, Kadashman Enlil had not heard of his sister since. No word, no communication. He had some concerns. Was she still alive? The very first letters of this diplomatic archive tell us how Amunhotep III and Kadashman Enlil negotiated their relationship. It started out with an argument, as Kadashman complained to the pharaoh about the mystery surrounding his sister. Amunhotep's reply to this survives. It is less than polite. Quote, Say to Kadashman Enlil, the king of Karduniash, my brother, on behalf of Nibmuraya, the great king, the king of Egypt, your brother. All is well with me, may it be well with you. May it also be very well with your household, your wives, your children, and your magnates, with your horses, your chariots, and throughout all your lands. It is well with me, etc., etc. You know how this stuff goes. Now, I have received a message which you, Kadashman, sent to me regarding your sister, which said, quote, Nobody has seen her. Is she dead or alive? These were the very words you sent to me on your tablet. But did you ever send a dignitary who actually knows your sister, who could speak with her and identify her? If you did, let him speak with her. The men whom you sent, they are nobodies. End quote. Once again, we are in the convoluted and occasionally confusing world of ancient letter writing. There's a bit going on here, so let me break it down. First of all, the letter starts in the middle of things. 
The correspondence has apparently been going on for a while, and Amunhotep is responding to one or more letters that have come to Egypt previously. Amunhotep references and quotes the Babylonian letters, which apparently complained about this missing princess. Well, Pharaoh was not having that, thank you very much. He tells Kadashman in Lille, in no uncertain terms, that if he wants accurate information about this princess, he should send somebody who actually knows her. Diplomacy 101, if you want good relations with my kingdom, and you want accurate information, send someone who is experienced, capable, and knows the lay of my land. What is this? Amateur hour? Fools! Got a bit into character there. Amunhotep continues his frustration over Kadashman's complaints, and the insinuations that the Egyptians would cover up any mishap. In the next section of this letter, Amunhotep offers a point-by-point rebuttal of the Babylonians' claims. Now this part is a bit frustrating, because I have to quote Amunhotep, while he also quotes the letter that came from Babylon. So we have a letter-within-a-letter situation. To make it simple, I'll do Amunhotep in my voice, and the Babylonian quotes in a voice appropriate to Amunhotep's tone. Cool? Cool. Amunhotep writes the following, quote, The men whom you sent are nobodies. There is not one among them who even knows the princess, who was close to your father, or who could identify her. So regarding this message where you said, quote, While your wives were gathered in your presence, you, the pharaoh, said to my envoys, Here, here is your princess standing right in front of you. But my envoys did not recognize this lady. Well, it's as you say. Who can identify her? Why don't you send a dignitary who will actually speak the truth to you about the welfare of your sister, who is, I assure you, still here? Then you might believe the one who enters your sister's apartment and sees her relationship with me. End quote. That was convoluted. The gist of it goes like this. Amunhotep is insulted. First of all, the Babylonian envoys weren't even men who could recognize the princess by sight. So when Pharaoh presented her to them, they were unable to actually identify her. Which is stupid. Why send a diplomat on a mission if they don't even have the skill necessary to complete that? The frustration is palpable, and Amunhotep continues in the same vein. Once again, he repeats the words that Kadashman has sent. Quote, Regarding this message where you said, Perhaps the woman that my envoy saw was the daughter of a commoner, or a Kaskian, or even a daughter of Hanigalbat. Who can believe these women? The one with you, whom you presented, did not even open her mouth to speak Babylonian to them. Someone could not possibly believe these women. These were your words. Look, if your sister were dead, why would we cover it up and substitute someone else? As Amun lives, your sister is still alive. End quote. I'm not going to lie, I'm starting to think Amunhotep doth protest too much. He goes on and on about this letter, and about how offended he is, and he challenges Kadashman Enlil on every one of the envoy's points. But you have to wonder, why didn't the Babylonian princess simply speak to the messengers? Was it a decorum thing? Some kind of formality? Was she too high-ranking to speak to these nobodies whom she did not know personally? Or was the princess actually deceased, and the woman who came out just another one of the Near Eastern princesses that had joined the vast harem? 
Apparently, the Babylonian envoys had suggested that this princess might have been the daughter of a commoner, or a, quote, Kaskian, or even a daughter of Hanigalbat. Kaskian is a region within Babylonia, and Hanigalbat, that's part of the kingdom of Mitanni. So it seems as though the Babylonians were suspicious that this woman who was presented to them might have been one of many princesses from the region whom the pharaoh was simply substituting for a deceased Babylonian. Obviously, this is one of those situations that is terribly susceptible to speculation, even conspiracy theories. Amunhotep III and the Babylonian princess killed JFK after faking the moon landing. And you could honestly interpret it either way. On the one hand, Amunhotep III was trying to secure a new princess for his bedchamber, so there might have been some motivation to hide the death of a previous one. On the other hand, people die all the time, usually of natural causes. Would it really be so terrible if the Babylonian princess had journeyed to the west? Was that going to break the relationship of two great powers? The situation seems a bit overblown, and the most likely explanation, at least to my 21st century logic, is that Amunhotep III was telling the truth, that the princess was alive, and the envoys simply weren't experienced enough to recognise her. Either way, it seems that the whole situation was sorted out in the end. What makes me think that? Well, by the time our next major set of letters pops up, the king of Babylonia was in a much better mood, and he was open to Amunhotep's original request. Quote, Say to Nebmuraya, the king of Egypt, my brother, on behalf of Kadashman Enlil, the king of Karduniash, your brother. It is indeed well with me, may it be very well with you, your household, your wives, your children, blah 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 blah. Now, as for my daughter, the girl whom you requested for marriage, she has now matured into a marriageable woman. Send an entourage to retrieve her. End quote. So the dispute was resolved, and within a couple of years, Kadashman Enlil was ready and willing to send his daughter to Egypt. Apparently, she had now reached a marriageable age, presumably the age of menstruation, and therefore puberty. So the princess was 13, 14? Old enough, as they say, to technically produce children. On that basis, Kadashman Enlil pronounced himself agreeable. All the pharaoh had to do was come get her. Before they were done, Kadashman wanted something else from pharaoh. He was sending his daughter to Egypt, and in return he was getting gold. But the Babylonian ruler was, like any king, interested in expanding his harem. Apparently, he actually asked Amunhotep to send one of his daughters in return. This request did not go down well, and Kadashman repeats Pharaoh's reply on the matter of Egyptian bridal princesses. Quote, My brother, when I wrote to you about marrying your daughter, you, in accordance with your practices, wrote back to me saying, quote, from time immemorial, no daughter of the king of Egypt is given to anyone. End quote. Kadashman had crossed a line. In the annals of Egyptian history, and in all the records of foreign kingdoms, we never hear a single hint that the pharaohs ever gave their daughters to marry some faraway ruler. It didn't matter who it was, how powerful their people, how generous their offer. Egyptian princesses remained Egyptian, and there was nothing Kadashman could do about that. 
The Babylonian seems to have had some trouble grasping this concept. Quote, No daughter of the king of Egypt is given to anyone. Well, why not? You are a king, you can do as you please. Were you to give me a daughter, who would dare say anything about it? And after this message was relayed to me, I wrote back saying, Well, someone's growing daughters, beautiful women, must be available. Send me a beautiful lady as if she were your daughter. Who is going to say, that is no daughter of the king? But you have held to your decision, and you have not sent me anyone. End quote. Ah, Kadashman, that's not the point. The issue is not that Amunhotep cares about his daughters particularly and won't send them away for sentimental reasons. The point, dear Kadashman, is that no Egyptian woman gets sent overseas to marry. This was not an issue of price or personality, this was an issue of prestige. Egypt did not humble itself, the exchange of princesses was strictly one way. As you can guess, Kadashman was a little bit put out by this whole issue. Quote, Did not you yourself seek brotherhood and goodness, and wrote to me about marriage so that we might come closer to each other? And did not I, on my own part, write to you about marriage for this very same reason? Why then did my brother not send me just one lady? Should I perhaps refuse you a woman since you did not send me one? My daughters being available, I will not refuse one to you. End quote. And there it is. Pharaoh got his way, regardless of how irritated Kadashman may have felt. Babylon backed down, and a daughter of the great king travelled west. No princess went east. So, the king of Babylon and the king of Egypt sorted out their disputes and came to an agreement. A princess would travel from the Euphrates to the Nile Valley and be inducted into the harem of the pharaoh. With a bit of luck, that young anonymous lady would become a privileged member of the court and enjoy a life of luxury on the banks of the great river. We now come to the end of chapter 1, a good place for a break if you need it. After the break, we explore the last months of Amunhotep III's life. What did the great pharaoh experience as his time came to an end? How did he prepare? And what happened when that inevitable moment came? All that, and more, after the break. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.
Chapter 2 The year was now 1362 BCE, approximately. It was the last year of the great king Neb Ma'at Re's life. Whether he knew that or not is impossible to tell. Either way, our story reaches its inevitable climax. Amunhotep was not long for this world. Soon, the great pharaoh would begin his journey to the west. His body was beginning to show it. Amunhotep was now 50 years old, approximately, and age was beginning to catch up with him. He was terribly fat, obese really, and his teeth were in poor condition. We know this because his mummy has survived, buried in the royal cache of KV-35, the tomb of Amunhotep II. Once discovered, forensic study of the mummy revealed the king's basic pathology, what he suffered from in the last months of his life. Before he died, Amunhotep was experiencing a couple of serious issues. His obesity didn't help, but his mouth was in great pain. Pharaoh was afflicted with a condition called dental granuloma, which is an inflammation in the roots of the teeth. Granuloma causes swelling, reddening of the gums, and severe pain. So the king probably had horrendous toothache. For this, he could turn to just a couple of medicinal treatments. Obviously, the Egyptians were aware of dentistry and its problems, and they did develop some responses to the issue. Surviving medical papyri lay out different ailments, and looking at these, we can get some treatments for tooth-related issues. For Amunhotep's painful swelling and gum reddening, an 18th dynasty physician might prescribe something like this. Quote, Another remedy for treating an itching tooth before the opening of the flesh in a wound. Take one measure of cumin, one part resin of incense, one jarret fruit, and crush it all together. Apply this to the tooth. End quote. A doctor might inspect the king's mouth, see the telltale signs, and then mix a poultice of those ingredients. Cumin, incense resin, and jarret fruit, whatever that is, are all mixed up and applied to the infected area. With this simple concoction, the physician worked on the gum and hoped for the best. Maybe that helped to alleviate the pain, but it clearly couldn't solve the underlying issue. We know this because it seems that Amunhotep had to endure dental surgery during the last months of his life. Not long before he died, Amunhotep III underwent a procedure that removed his right upper incisor, one of those chomping teeth next to the canine. It's possible that it fell out naturally, but either way, the king was probably in excruciating pain. It's even possible he was chewing opium. Amunhotep III may have used sedatives or opioids to combat his horrible dental pain. We know that the Egyptians were aware of narcotics, and they seem to have cultivated flowers like the poppy and blue lotus for these qualities. There are artistic scenes from the reign of Tutankhamun and Akhenaten which show members of the royal family smelling these flowers, and it's possible that they chewed them or consumed them in some way. Apparently, if you mix blue lotus petals with alcohol, they create a wonderful narcotic effect. So maybe Egyptians were using those in the same way. This is all hypothetical, unfortunately. We simply don't have hard evidence for drug use in this time period. It makes logical sense. You're in pain and you know some flowers give euphoric feelings, so why not use them, right? But until chemical analysis of mummies advances considerably, we have no idea what exactly they were chewing. 
Amonhotep was medicating himself somehow, that much is certain. You see, on one side of his mouth, the king's skull has a huge buildup of tartar. This might have been caused by that poultice or medicine, or it may have been caused by chewing opiates day and night. Either way, it wasn't pleasant, and I bet his breath was terrible. There was one final issue which afflicted the pharaoh before his death. Studies of his skull have suggested that Amunhotep, the dazzling Aten, was suffering from a brain tumour. His mummy has erosions on the right parietal bone, the part of your skull which forms the roof and sides of the head. This is consistent with the effects of brain tumours, and it may have been a cause of the king's eventual passing. Unfortunately, the mummification process destroyed the brain, so we can't confirm that, but it's a strong possibility. Tumours, gum disease, dental surgery, obesity. The last years of Amunhotep III were not a pleasant time. Assuming he used some form of pain relief, chances are the great pharaoh was a drooling, stupefied mess by the time his last day came upon him. If his mummy is telling the truth, the king was not in a good state at all when the inevitable moment arrived. Amunhotep III's last months were not pleasant. At the age of 50, the king probably spent his last days in great pain. His jaw was inflamed, his skull throbbed, and he could barely eat. Dulling the agony as best he could, Pharaoh may have chewed opium endlessly, tartar building up on his gums and complicating the disease even more. Slowly, his health degraded, and eventually he lay in a stupor, waiting for the end. During this time, he seems to have lost a lot of weight. With his dental problems making it hard to eat, the great pharaoh may have wasted away, his body consuming itself in an effort to survive. Perhaps he experienced a last debilitating illness. Perhaps he slowly starved to death. Whatever the cause, pharaoh's great splendor ran out, and he finally passed away. Amunhotep III probably died around January of 1362, about seven months into his 38th regnal year. We're not exactly sure when he died, because the calendar of regnal years and the actual calendar of the Egyptian year don't sync up. But scholars have examined the records of Amunhotep's successor, and determined that the most likely date for the transition was the first month of Peret, the planting season. If so, Amunhotep probably left this life around January, during the celebrations called the Festival of Neheb Kau. This was a wonderfully appropriate time to die. Neheb Kau, the one who unites spirits, was a netherworld deity who had protected kings since the days of the pyramid texts. Neheb Kau would raise up the king's good name to the council of the gods. For Amunhotep III, the festivities of this god were a fortuitous time to die. Amunhotep III left this world and became Osiris. His journey to the west and his voyage across the stars in the bark of Re now began. They would continue for the rest of eternity. With the pharaoh dead, the night fell on a most august reign. The dazzling Aten, Neb Ma'at Re, now made his way to the west. First his bar, then his car, and finally his body, took the journey out of this world and into the realm of Osiris. Priests collected the body of the king, mummified it, and prepared it for interment. 
The organs were removed, the limbs preserved, and the corpse, now much reduced from its obese form, wrapped before the embalmers placed it into the first of many coffins. Queen T, the king's son, and the members of the court accompanied Amunhotep as his body rose atop the burial sled. White oxen, perhaps, hauled the sled itself, and priests may have poured milk in front of it to anoint the road. We hear this in a tomb of a near contemporary, who says, quote, May you be laid out on a bier in the house of rest, and be drawn by white oxen. May the ways be opened with milk until your arrival at the entrance to your tomb. May the children of your children all be assembled and wail with loving heart. End quote. Amunhotep's children, Sit Amun, Henut Taneb, Iset, Nebet Ia, Amunhotep IV, and more, surely accompanied the sled. The family, with Queen T at the forefront beside her son, led the way. Priests and priestesses followed, singing their prayers and burning their incense. Porters carried tall lotus plants, boxes of flowers, furniture, food, and accessories towards the cliffs west of Thebes. The funeral procession was making its way towards the Valley of the Kings. Amunhotep III, like every king since Totmose I, made his tomb among the cliffs of the western bank. But he did not build it in the Valley of the Kings itself. Instead, Pharaoh chose a spot nearby in a side valley that branches off from the main canyon. This area, called the Western Valley, was a virgin site at the time. Even now, it holds just a few tombs among its hills. You'll find Amunhotep's monument dug into the lower levels of this valley. To access it, you clamber down steep stairs before you come to the main doorway. It is here, more than 3,300 years ago, that the priests raised the coffin of the king before the entrance and performed their sacred rites. The opening of the mouth ceremony, a 75-chapter-long series of gestures, prayers, hymns, and references, prepared the body of Amunhotep for its long rest. The priest symbolically restored the deceased's ability to see, speak, hear, eat, and drink. Attendants, and perhaps the king's son, gathered to perform ritual reenactments of the death of Osiris and the battle between Horus and Seth over who would control the throne. With these acts, Amunhotep's body and his spirit were transfigured into Osiris himself, and the king could begin his journey to rest. Our near contemporary, who wished for his family to attend one's funeral, now offers some extra hopes for the burial ceremonies. Quote, May your mouth be opened by the chief lector priest. May you be purified by the sem priest. May Horus weigh your heart for you after he has opened your eyes and ears. May your limbs and bones be present for you. May the spells of transfiguration be read aloud for you. And may the mortuary offerings be performed for you. End quote. The king's body in its coffin was taken down into the depths of the tomb. Let's follow. We clamber down some steep stairs and through the doorway, dug beneath a rocky overhang. Passing the threshold, we find ourselves in a long corridor, stretching away into the darkness. We are headed east, with the sunrise ahead and the sunset at our back. Let's assume that we are visiting in the late afternoon, so a bit of light still comes in through the passageway. With that to guide us, we make our way to the first notable section. Like many royal tombs, Amunhotep's inner chambers begin with a deep, square pit 
dug into the floor. This well shaft is usually located at the end of the first corridor, just on the threshold of the antechamber. In Amunhotep's case, the shaft is a deep square pit about 8 metres tall from ceiling to floor, and it descends almost 6 metres below the floor level. At the bottom, a small chamber is dug into the wall, extending towards the west. This well chamber shows up in the tomb of Akeperure Amunhotep II, Neb Matre's grandfather, and it might be a place for the symbolic burial of Osiris, and or the royal car. What gives us that idea? Well, to begin with, these well chambers are usually located on the north or west side of the shaft. North and west are pivotal points of reference, west for the Akhet or western horizon, which was the entrance to the underworld, north because that was the direction of Osiris's throne within the underworld itself. So the well chamber may be a symbolic burial place for Osiris. If water ever flooded down the shaft itself, then the chamber could become like the waters of the underworld, the infinite waters of the primeval ocean. We don't know exactly what the well shafts are for, but in the mid-18th dynasty, around the time of Amunhotep II, Tatmos IV, and Amunhotep III, there is a strong possibility that they are designed as a place for the tomb of Osiris, lord of the dead and protector of the king's soul. We go past the well shaft and continue our inspection. As we enter the next chamber, the light from the sun reaches its terminus, and we must light some lamps. Mind your head, it's time to enter the tomb itself. Going through the main entrance, we first of all enter a large pillared hall. This is undecorated and apparently incomplete. We then go down a small staircase and arrive at a tiny antechamber. This one, at least, is decorated, and I'll return to it in a second. For now, let's focus on the most important part, and follow the funeral procession into the burial hall. Amunhotep III's burial chamber is much like those of his father, Tutmose, and his grandfather, Amunhotep II. It is a long rectangle with six columns. The room is divided into two halves. There is an upper level at the entrance, and covering about two-thirds of the floor. Then, at the eastern end, there is a lower level for the coffin. To keep ourselves oriented, we are now facing east again. The tomb goes in a sort of zigzag. Starts by going east, turns north in the antechamber, and then reorients itself to the east again for the burial hall. Why it does this is unclear, but it seems the architect had improved on his design from previous royal tombs, and now the tomb of the king led eastward as often as possible. The east, of course, is the place of sunrise, of resurrection, of renewal. It is where the king, in his form of Rahorakti, will appear at the new dawn, symbolizing the never-ending resurrection. Putting his sarcophagus in that direction assisted with the process, and ensured the king was never far from his renewal. The burial chamber points east, the sarcophagus points north. Both directions are associated with rebirth and renewal, so the overall arrangement of the tomb seems to cover Amunhotep's bases. When the time came, he would be well set up for his journey into eternity. To go along with this, the pharaoh also made provisions for his wives. Queen Ti and Sit Amun, the official great royal wives, needed places of burial befitting their status. Well, 
Amunhotep III's architect offered an intriguing solution. Normally, the burial chamber is pretty much the end of the tomb, at least in the 18th dynasty monuments. There might be some storage rooms or niches, but nothing major. That is not the case in Amunhotep's grave. Instead, the burial hall leads to two additional rooms designed to hold extra burials. These halls to the north and the east were arranged for the great wives. The two extra halls have one pillar each and space for furnishings, treasures and sarcophagi. They were originally meant to be storerooms, but at some point, perhaps around year 30 when Sit Amun was promoted to great royal wife, the stonemasons enlarged the storerooms into proper burial halls. We can tell this because the chisel marks on the walls change at a certain point, reflecting the work of a new team and a new direction. A cool touch. These extra halls were mostly empty when the tomb was discovered, but excavations turned up some fragments of burial goods belonging to Queen T, and maybe to Sit Amun. So the question is, were the two ladies ever buried here? Well, that's hard to say. Queen T outlived her husband, but she might have been buried here much later. Sit Amun, meanwhile, is a question mark. No information survives about her, and there are no burial goods in the tomb that might belong to this younger lady. Unfortunately, she remains a mystery. The royal tomb of Amunhotep III was a beauty. At the time, it was the largest ever built in terms of raw space. Including all chambers, the tomb covers an area of 554.92 meters square, about 50% larger than the tombs of his father and grandfather respectively. This was a huge sepulchre. It was also beautifully decorated. The tomb of Amunhotep III has some of the most wonderful paintings yet seen in a royal tomb. To begin with, the burial hall was decorated with a complete rendition of the Book of the Hidden Chamber. The Book of the Hidden Chamber, often called the Amduat, or That Which Is In The Underworld, told the story of the sun god's nightly journey through the depths. Over twelve hours of the night, Ra crossed deserts and lakes, warded off monsters and serpents, brought light to the fortunate dead, and saved those who had drowned. In what may be the coolest idea for a video game, graphic novel, or movie ever, Ra's journey through the Amduat culminated in his apotheosis and his appearance at the next dawn. I explored Amduat in greater detail in episode 82, in case you would like a refresher. For now, all we need to know is that Amunhotep's burial hall features a complete copy of the text. It was the last to do so. Amunhotep's Amduat is drawn in the same stick-figure calligraphy of earlier tombs. Gods and spirits appear with simple outline figures, minimal detail and hardly any colour. In fact, the whole underworld is depicted with just three shades, yellow for the background, black for the people, and red for selected hieroglyphs. And of course, the sun disk of Ra. You might be forgiven for thinking that these colours are rather sparse, but the idea seems to be that the walls imitate an unrolled papyrus. From one side of the doorway, all around the perimeter and back to the entrance, you see the Amduat in one continuous depiction. In effect, the hidden chamber becomes a book, protecting the body of the king. Beyond the walls, the six pillars of the burial hall each had their own decorative scheme as well. 
Instead of stick figures, we see fully fleshed out beings, great gods and the king standing tall on the faces. In a systematic layout, the pillars depict the gods according to a simple but important geography. The six pillars have four sides, one each for the north, south, east and west. The north and south faces are decorated with images of Hathor. Hathor, the supreme goddess, appears in two of her distinct identities. On the southern side, she is shown in her guise of Emenet, the western lady. On the northern, she appears as Hathor, lady of Dendera, lady of the sky, and mistress of all the gods. So Hathor dominates two of the sides on each pillar. The other faces mainly feature Osiris, but there are also two depictions of Anubis. Overall, it's a gathering of gods associated with the afterlife. Hathor of the West, Hathor of the Sky, Anubis the Guardian, and Osiris the King. It's a good posse for Amunhotep's sacred hall. Outside the burial chamber, the scenes switch from Amduat and underworld gods to a more varied suite of beings. The other decorated rooms, the antechamber and the well shaft, show the king and gods in nice fleshed out figures with full colouring. I'll do my best to describe them, but as always, there are images on the website. To begin with, the background of these walls is a sort of bluish grey. This has never appeared in a royal tomb before, suggesting a new innovation in artistry. Usually tombs have a yellow or cream background. Now there's something more celestial going on. Blue is one of the gods' colours, their eyebrows were said to be lapis lazuli, and the sky was depicted as a deep blue littered with golden stars. Putting the king in this kind of setting might be a visual representation of how Amunhotep III, Neb Ma'at Re, had ascended to his own form of divinity. I'm speculating there, but it's possible that the godhood of the king and the new appearance of blue in the tomb paintings has some connection. Just a thought. Amunhotep appears with many different gods, Anubis, Hathor, Nut, the sky goddess, Emenet, the western lady, and of course, Osiris. These great lords, all of whom have some kind of celestial or underworld association, stand before the king and greet Amunhotep as he approaches. Some of them offer life, Ankh, others clasp him by the hand in a friendly greeting, and some throw their arm around his shoulder, embracing him like a long-lost brother which, in a way, he was. By and large, these scenes are quite typical. Kings, gods, hieroglyphs, and ritual. Standard stuff, right? Well, there's at least one innovation, one more addition to the scheme that is different from previous tombs. This innovation is the inclusion of the royal Ka. The Ka, or spirit and vitality, appears alongside the pharaoh. It is depicted as a human wearing a tall crown shaped in the form of the Ka symbol, two arms stretching left and right bent upward at the elbows. Usually the Ka appears alongside the king, guiding him, helping him, protecting him, just like a god. But we don't see the Ka in tombs until this time period. After Amunhotep, the trend would continue in royal burials. In effect, a new tradition began here. The tomb of Amunhotep III is a grand, elaborately decorated affair. At the time, it was the largest royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings. That accomplishment would hold for at least the next 40 years. Not bad in the world of architecture, where the impulse to outdo one's predecessors is quite visible. 
On top of that, it introduced new features and refined older ones. The designer and the artisans were on top of the game. So Amunhotep's tomb is a spectacular achievement of the art. The work was second to none, and although the tomb is technically unfinished, it is still a beautiful piece of work and worthy of praise overall. Going back to Amunhotep's funeral, the procession made its way into the burial chamber and laid the king's body to rest. Priests carried the coffins into the burial hall and placed them within the large sarcophagus. The stone lid was placed over and Amunhotep's body was sealed away for eternity. After that, the process was nearly complete. The tomb was furnished, the doorways bricked up and plastered, darkness fell upon the chambers, and Amunhotep III began his long rest. He would slumber, mostly undisturbed, for 300 years. Not the best run, but it would have to do. It's been a long time since we talked about any other pharaoh. In real time, it's taken me a year to cover Amunhotep's reign. In historical terms, we've delved into more stories and side matters for this man than any other before him. Before we move on, I'd like to do the retrospective on Amunhotep's grand legacy. It is a crucially important one. Amunhotep III is not the longest reigning pharaoh ever, he is not the most accomplished in battle. He is the greatest builder of monuments, at least since the reign of Sneferu back in the 4th dynasty. He is not the most famous of Egyptian monarchs. For my money though, I think you could make a persuasive case that Neb Ma'adre Amunhotep III is the most important ruler in Egypt's history. Allow me to explain. Amunhotep came to power at the age of 12, approximately. He may have been younger, but it's not certain. What is clear is that he came to the throne at a time when Egypt was unquestionably the world's most influential kingdom. For nearly 200 years since the accession of Amosa I and the defeat of the Hyksos, the Egyptian state had been marching steadily on a path of military success, economic growth, and social change. Its temples had become vast complexes, its priests developed new mythologies and ideas about the gods, its army swept through any land with ease, and the wealth of the world flowed into Pharaoh's treasuries. Basically, Amunhotep came to power at the exact moment when Egypt was in its greatest glory. Of course, Amunhotep III did not create that empire. He inherited it from men like Amosa I, Tutmose III, and Amunhotep II, and women like Ahotep, Amosa Nefertari, and Queen Hatshepsut. 
For 200 years, Egyptian monarchs had been slowly building, piece by piece, a mighty imperial kingdom. Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III was the one who fulfilled that process. From day one of his reign, Amunhotep III and those who guided him, like the Queen Mother Mut Emwia, set about expanding on what had come before. First of all, they had united the royal bloodline with a new family, the family of Yuya and Chuyu from the town of Akmin. When Yuya and Chuyu's daughter, Ti, had married Amunhotep, the bloodline of mid-dynasty 18, which we call Tutmosid, received an infusion of new talent. That had huge consequences, good and bad, for the next three decades. After the marriage of Amunhotep and Ti, the royal court pushed their military power into the south. A campaign into Nubia crushed some kind of rebellion, which may or may not have been an excuse for an Egyptian raid. And potentially, they explored right down into what is now Sudan. Suggestions that Amunhotep, or one of his generals, led troops all the way to the Fourth Cataract are tentative, but an intriguing idea. What is clear is that the Egyptian military force in that region remained totally dominant with no serious contender. To the north, in Syria, Amunhotep inherited a patchwork empire of city-states and small kingdoms that gave tribute and obedience to the Egyptian government. Now, Neb Ma'at Re was no warrior, his reign is better known for its diplomacy than its conquering, but he effectively negated any Mitanni resurgence by marrying a princess of that kingdom and continuing the alliance which had endured since the days of his father. What's more, Amunhotep forged stronger bonds with distant lands. Lands like Babylon, which, although too far away to be a serious threat or ally, were influential in their region nonetheless. What's more, Amunhotep forged stronger bonds with distant lands like Babylon. Although Babylon was too far to be a serious threat or ally, they were nonetheless influential in their region. If Egypt was allied to Babylon and to Mitanni, then at the very least, those two powers would need to remain friendly with each other, and any other threats, like, say, the Hittites or Assyrians, had to factor that relationship into their desires for expansion. It wasn't the most secure alliance in the world, but it is a noteworthy success. Culturally, too, the period of Amunhotep III's reign is incredible for how much survives. Not only do we have dozens of tombs belonging to wealthy individuals, we also have the intact tombs of two significant couples. Yuya and Chuyu survived in their burial at the Valley of the Kings, and a man named Ka, with his wife Merit, were undisturbed in the village of Deir al-Medina, all the way up to their rediscovery in the early 1900s. I'll talk about Ka and Merit next episode, but it's worth mentioning them now. Intact tombs give us an insight into the customs and trappings of non-royal but still wealthy people. Even ignoring the wealth, we are able to see things like intact books of the dead belonging to Yuya and Ka, and we can study their bodies for information about health and lifestyle. We can see the various goods which accompanied them into the afterlife, and get a sense of what was important to different individuals in different places. 
From records like this, Egyptologists can unpack beliefs, personal connections, and the priorities of those who buried their deceased relatives. Outside of tombs, we have records of social change. Egyptians visited and lived in places like Crete or Greece. Embassies to the Mycenaean Kingdom and the old Minoan capital of Knossos hint at Egyptian relationships with the Aegean. Artistic motifs from those places start to show up in Egypt itself, suggesting that Greek expatriates were coming to the Nile Valley for work. Coupled with older remains like the city of Peru-Nefer, episodes 69 and 79, we get a sense of long-standing relationships between Egypt and that part of the world. It is expressed most clearly in the reign of Amunhotep. Religiously, this time period also marks a pivotal moment in how Egyptians expressed their relationship with the divine. The most obvious feature is how the king began to identify himself as one of the gods themselves. Amunhotep went beyond any previous monarch in claiming a share of divinity. He built temples devoted to his royal car, and represented himself as a sort of living god on earth, Neb Ma'at Re, also known as the Dazzling Aten. It was a mostly unprecedented approach. While other monarchs had touched on some of these ideas, like Hatshepsut with her whole born from Amun thing, Amunhotep seems to have taken it further than any of his predecessors. As you may know, this had powerful effects, good and bad, on the generations which followed. Outside of his grandiosity, Amunhotep's reign also saw great success in art and literature. Tomb paintings are incredibly vibrant and accomplished. Religious texts like the Book of the Dead, the Amduat, and the Litany of Re are found in different places. Again, I'll explore these in an upcoming episode, but suffice to say, this period is rich in religious thought and expression, and things get really interesting in the next couple of decades. Amunhotep III came of age and took the throne at a time when Egyptians were at the peak of their game. Maybe he didn't create that world, and he certainly didn't control it, but if a monarch's reign is a shorthand for how their country was doing at the time, I think Amunhotep III's was the best overall that had existed so far. Out of his predecessors, only Tutmos III is a truly close contender, but Amunhotep's religious impact pushes him just that little bit ahead in the race. There are others, like Senusaret, Amenemhat, or Sneferu, who have a great run as well, but Amunhotep III makes it over the finish line with at least a couple seconds to spare. So, for my money, Neb Ma'at Re is the greatest pharaoh that Egypt ever had. In the words of my favourite YouTube reviewer, he is awesome-tacular. So we finally did it. We told the story of Amunhotep III, Neb Ma'at Re, possibly the most successful pharaoh to ever grace the Egyptian throne. Now we begin some truly fascinating times. With the king dead, power has come to his son. The young Amunhotep IV is ready to receive his inheritance and take the throne of the two lands. On the next episode, we take a brief detour to look at Queen T in the wake of her husband's passing. We do this via an interview with Joyce Tildesley, a UK Egyptologist who has written extensively about the queens of Egypt.
Joyce is a fascinating individual, and we had a great conversation about women and power during the New Kingdom. That episode is releasing next week. After that, we begin a story that many of you, including myself, have been waiting for. It is time to begin the reign of Amunhotep IV, better known to history as Akhenaten. the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at granger we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies count on real-time product availability and fast delivery call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done